Mountain Radio. Well, the recent news footage showing mobs of far-right extremists featuring Nazi symbols, to say the least, least actually shocked us all, I'm sure. The federal government has chosen now to ban all Nazi symbols, including the sale of goods for profit uh, featuring Nazi symbols. So that's another good thing. Dr Ben Rich joins us now, co-director of the Curtin Extremism Research Network. Good afternoon to you, Ben. Good afternoon. Nice to speak to you. Before we get to what has happened with the federal government, which is obviously a start, um, what about the, the role of the network that you're with? What do you actually take on? Things like this. So we're, uh, so we're really interested in uh, exploring questions around um, what we term as cultural extremism. So these are looking at the kind of uh, material conditions that enable uh, extreme ideas to take root in society. So whether that's uh, growing economic disparity, whether that's uh, alienation that we're seeing is sort of uh, driven through uh, modern forms of technology and social networks, um, whether that's in relation to even things like labour relations and practices. Um, but what we're really interested in is moving beyond just the kind of service level critique of these ideas and trying to figure out ways and strategies to make them so that they aren't able to take root in society in the first place. Well, it's good to know that you're there doing exactly that, Ben. That's wonderful. How do you get the leads about what's going on? Because usually when these extreme people start up with what they're doing, they don't let it be known straight away, do they? Um, well, you kind of have to know where to poke around on the dark corners of the internet these days. Um, there are a number of websites um, where these types of organisations, groups and ideas kind of tend to coalesce and uh, ferment within. Um, and they're actually pretty well known if you sort of exist in this space. And then you look at sort of other kinds of digital footprints to track, you know, their sort of ideas and objectives, you know, things like reviewing memes, um, looking at uh, particular manifestos, et cetera, et cetera. Mm. What do you do then when you discover that this is something that you have great concern about? Do you take on that, um, you know, that particular task or do you pass it on to someone else? So we kind of see ourselves as the uh, sort of advisors to the kind of institutions and uh, civil society groups that are out there kind of on the front line to this. Um, one of the initiatives we've recently uh, undertook is basically a, a series of public education initiatives, open source, um, that is going to be rolled out uh, online that will basically give... Um, practitioners uh, and people on the front lines, whether that's professionally, whether that's um, through the government, um, a, a wider way of, array of knowledge about uh, where these ideas come from, yeah. how the particular influences that often um, are at the kind of forefront of them, uh, the kind of tactics they use to lure in vulnerable people, and then give them kind of a practical set of suggestions and tips on, you know, how do you actually push back on this, um, you know, either as a, maybe a community leader, um, someone in business uh, or indeed, you know, someone working, you know, sort of really on the cold face in, say, the countering violent extremism portfolios in uh, the police. Is it important, do you think, for the public to be a little bit more aware of our surroundings and unusual behaviour and, you know, sort of get inf inform people like yourselves? Is the, Does that happen at all? 
Uh, look, I'm very aware um, there's a bit of a, 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 a real um, needle that you have to thread on this because on the one thing you don't want to, um, you know, sort of encourage a climate of suspicion. Um, we've seen that happen over the last uh, 20 years with the kind of war on terror rhetoric and the really disastrous outcomes that had for um, Muslim communities in particular who were kind of tarred and feathered because of the acts of a small number of, uh, you know, extremist outliers. Um, but we also want to build what we term as uh, social resilience, that is uh, raising awareness in the public that these are real issues, um, that they are growing, um, that they do indeed come out of broader sets of issues around race, um, gender that you know this, uh, that our societies are confronting right now, and oftentimes they do build out of wider biases held in society. Mm. And our view is that if we kind of build that awareness, we build that uh, competence in society, we build empathy around these issues. Uh, what we'll ultimately have is a healthier society that is able to resist them. Because oftentimes, what's happened, you know, in the relatively recent past, is these ideas are able to kind of sneak their way in because people are pretty um, unaware that. Uh, of the real uh, challenge they pose and how they do draw on a degree of legitimacy of uh, views in society that are held more widely. Well, technology, of course, is a dark side to that too, which, Ben, you obviously and your people that you work with you have access to and we don't necessarily. Uh, do you think that the dark side of technology has been enabling these people that are extremists to build up their cause? Oh, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, we unfortunately have a series of pretty dominant social media companies right now that are business models that are um, predicated on driving conflict in society. So as much as you have companies like uh, Facebook and Twitter getting up there and saying they stand against extremism and or maybe Twitter a bit less so lately with their current CEO, but um, mm. uh, generally speaking, social media take a, a platform that they are, you know, anti-extremism, they're about social cohesion, they're about um, inclusivity and tolerance, um, but the reality is, is that their business models um, and the algorithms that you know are f- uh, intrinsically linked to those business models thrive off conflict, um, thrive off creating controversy, and uh, then you add to that a mix of very canny influences. You know, guys like Andrew Tate, you know, in, the, in sort of the the, the gender space, um, who are very aware of how these systems work and are very able to exploit them to their own kind of ends for profit and also spreading their ideas you kind of have this kind of witch's brew um, a perfect storm that has kind of led us to the current moment in part you know when we saw the vision on the news of the you know the extreme group of course that they were banning having the symbols of uh, nazism and the symbol you know their arm in the air and everything we were just horrified by that did you have any idea prior to them going public like that that they were existing Absolutely. I mean, uh, these groups have, you know, sort of long kind of traded on these types of images. Um, and oftentimes they'll trade on images that are very similar, that evoke the same kind of aesthetic responses, but aren't quite. Um, crossing that threshold and having that historical link. And they're very good at kind of pushing it up to, you know, the real borderline and then pulling back and sort of claiming that, you know, oh, it's just a joke or I was just being a bit edgy. Um, and this is the way that these ideas kind of, you know, get out in the public, they get tested, people get more used to them. And then you see that wider kind of changing of discourse and ideas. And this is very much what these groups are trying to do. They're not necessarily, you know, going to, you know, storm Parliament House tomorrow, but what they want to do is change the tenor of the, disc- the discussion in the public. They want to get ideas that maybe 10 years ago would have been seen unconscionable out into the public and make them more and more normal to change, you know, the wider society. It's what's termed as metapolitics. 
How do they get people involved in this particular, you know, program of Nazism? And this? I mean, it's horrific, the, the history of it all. Who are these people? Why do they want to do this? Are they misfits in society, do you think? At the core, you typically have, you know, real true believers. You know, anyone who's going to kind of uh, sustain this type of effort in a quite public facing and deal with the consequences of that, you have to have a degree of commitment to the cause that I think many people that fall into it don't necessarily share. But oftentimes what those types of individuals are able to do is kind of look around at the world and the society that they occupy and um, identify maybe some of the weaknesses in that society, um, the sense that uh, for many, particularly young men now, are finding themselves uh, feeling like they're shut out from the, the discussion. They're looking at their futures, you know, in a world where things like housing prices are increasingly out of uh, reach for uh, young families. They're looking at jobs that are increasingly insecure, increasingly short term. Mm-hmm. They're looking at a, an economic environment where the skills you develop today could be obsolete tomorrow and they're feeling a lot of anger quite rightfully um, in response to that and what uh, is kind of uh, influencers and thought leaders in the space are able to do is kind of step into that anxiety capitalize on that uncertainty and offer a story and an explanation for why conditions are getting worse um, to young people and kind of pull them into that. And oftentimes the way that they do this is quite subtle. They don't necessarily lead with, you know, racial um, animus and white supremacy. They start to sort of offer... Um, alternative structures that people can fall into. So one of the, the classic examples we've seen over this over East was the uh, the use of MMA gyms that, you know, offer young men a place to go, let out their frustrations, build up some skills, build up a sense of camaraderie and, and team. Um, and those are all very powerful to pull people in. And then yeah. it's once they've kind of been conditioned into that environment, that's when you inject the ideology. That's when you start to tell them, the, yeah. you know, the stories about, you know, conspiracies involving Jewish people and Muslims, etc. Yeah, it is very extreme indeed. What about the new legislation, Ben? How do you think that's going to work? Look, I'm pretty pessimistic about it. Uh, I'm historically not a fan of banning symbols, no matter how hateful. Um, you know, my great-grandfather fought in the American Civil War. He fought against the Confederacy, um, and he was crippled for life as a result of that. Um, and when I see the Confederate flag flown, I feel a lot of deep emotional um, animus towards it, but I still don't think banning it's the right answer. Um, and I think what that tends to do is take symbols that are already, you know, fundamentally counterculture, and give them more legitimacy, not less. Mm. Um, and what you do in, as a result of that is you, you sort of give them more of power than they had before. I would much rather be in a society, and I think it's a much more effective uh, use of resources to try and change the society and to say and to you know come together to say that these are not acceptable uh, symbols, um, you know, through social pressure, not through legislation, because I think legislation doesn't solve the answer. In fact, I think legislation tends to pave over the uh, the issue and um, obscure it more than it does actually help. Because what you'll see is, um, unless you're an idiot, let's be realistic, what you're going to do is you're just going to change, you know, the, the symbols you've adopted. And we know with these groups, they're very effective at repurposing symbols that are often quite um, banal. Um, the classic example of this is the use of the OK symbol, which um, the, the, a number 
number of far-right groups kind of appropriated to be symbolic of them. Mm. And how do you accuse someone of, you know, do you ban that symbol then? It sort of becomes this endless uh, chasing of the, the, the post uh, truck and you're never going to catch it because they'll always be one step ahead of you. So I would much rather see the time, effort, energy spent, you know, trying to legislate what is going to be effectively unenforceable and ineffective into things around, you know, building up social resilience against these ideas yeah. um, and funding programs that, you know, encourage tolerance and also encourage and, and help to develop more of a stable future for our youth. What you say is absolutely correct and it would be wonderful if that does take that path. And I think the fact that the Nazi symbol just brings back so many horrible memories of what happened uh, to us here in Australia. Um, do they have these movements or these Nazi movements elsewhere in the world? These days, I mean, it's a, glo- it's a global phenomenon. Ah, and, right. Uh, you know, uh, we and we see it uh, well, particularly in the West, but we have all sorts of other, um, you know, ultra nationalist movements overseas in places like India, um, and uh, you know, it is a real a global phenomenon. This kind of reactionary movement, okay. uh, and even in places where you would really think it would have been stamped out, you know, the, the Nazi affiliation in Germany is heavily legislated against, as you know, you would probably imagine, and it hasn't done anything to stop the right uh, rise of far-right, racially animated actors um, in that particular country. Mm. Well, it's an incredible subject, isn't it? It really is, and I'm glad you've been able to speak to us about that today to make it a little little clearer, and uh, let's hope things work out right for everybody. Thank you very much indeed for your expertise today. Thank you, Ben. Have a good afternoon. Thank you, Dr Ben Rich.